So today we're so grateful to have Deepa Iyer with us to help answer some of our questions. Deepa is a South Asian American writer, strategist, and lawyer focused on immigrants and racial justice. She has served as an executive director of SALT, South Asian Americans Leading Together, and is the author of We Too Sing America and the host of the podcast, Solidarity Is This. Thank you for joining us, Deepa, and welcome to Chit Chat. Thank you so much for having me. Um, so, so Deepa, I think when we started to think about this, I got a little bit lost as to kind of where we start. If I think about South Asians, it seems like we have kind of our own issues with color. Should we be focusing more on ourselves rather than Black Lives Matter? I think that it's important and possible to do both. I'm uh, of Indian background, so that's what I would be able to speak to more. It's not surprising then when we think about different hierarchies, like whether it's colorism or whether it's caste, Mm -hmm. that we grew up with, Right. those ideas of who is better, who is superior, um, who is more attractive. When those perceptions are based on this sense of a hierarchy, it's not surprising that those same sorts of hierarchies can be all of a sudden acceptable when you think about anti-Black racism or Islamophobia or xenophobia or anti-Asian racism here in the United States. To answer your question, you know, I think that we, we must do both. We must be able to recognize and acknowledge and address it internally within our communities. And we must also find pathways to be in solidarity with um, defending Black lives in the United States. There's a term that has been used for many years, and it's kind of come up again in reference to South Asians, and it's, it's the term model minority. How do we start to reject this label so that we can actually move towards this a place of racial equity. I think it's important to kind of trace the history of this, the model minorities uh, myth is what we call it, right? It's a myth because it's really not true. And I'll get into that in just a minute. This idea of the model minority was actually a way to um, continue anti-Black racism and to pit Black communities and Asian communities against each other. Uh, it, it was used to say to, and it's continued to use to say to Black people, well, Asian folks, you know, seem to be totally fine. They're highly educated. They are able to get certain types of high paying jobs. Um, They're not complaining, quote, unquote, right, about racism. So if they can do that, then why can't Black folks do that? And so it's really important to recognize that what it is, is a way to pit Asian and Black communities against each other. And that's why we shouldn't give in to it. The second reason that it's a myth is because it's actually not true. I'm sure all of us have these experiences. If you even were to look at like census data on Asian Americans, it's actually not the case that every single Asian ethnic group is at, quote, this high level of education or, you know, income level, right? There are Asian Americans, including South Asians, who are living below the poverty level. There are um, South Asians who don't have access to health care. There are South Asians who um, say that they are limited English proficient. There are South Asians who actually have trouble accessing the education system. By propping up the model minority myth, we're actually rendering invisible people in our own community um, who have experiences that 
don't fit what that model minority status is all about. We can reject it by kind of calling it out when it happens. We can make sure that we're not actually perpetuating the, the model minority myth. I think that this wedge that has been created like really makes us misunderstand certain experiences and we might not feel like we are no, well equipped enough to take on the subject matter of the Black Lives Matter. So like, you know, I, I've heard of people being shamed for performative allyship or misunderstanding the Black experience when we compare it to our South Asian experience, and it can be very different, and there can be comparisons as well, but how can we as South Asians really be allies to, towards the Black community in particular? One of the most important things that we can do as South Asians is to really educate ourselves about the ways in which the histories of enslaved people the genocide and displacement of indigenous communities has um, really propped up white supremacy. So I think that part of it is taking responsibility for our own education uh, and then to understand that those same systems of oppression, whether they're white supremacy or capitalism or patriarchy, actually also affect us. Right. Um, and that means also understanding our own histories in this country. And I think that oftentimes South Asians feel that our history began in 1965. Right. And it's really important for us to recognize that that's not the case. Our, we have um, our ancestors were here at the turn of the 20th century and right before the turn of the 20th century. Right. And they picked apples. They were migrant farmers and they settled all up and down the West Coast, as well as places like Harlem and New Orleans. They also experienced the harm of white supremacy. You know, those early immigrants were not able to become US citizens because citizenship was only available to people who were white. Um, they could not own land, even if they tilled the land, they could not own land. They had no rights to it. And they were oftentimes um, chased down by uh, mobs called Asian Exclusion Leagues that were organized anti-Asian organizations that tried to hunt people down and chase them out of town. So their labor was exploited, but their contributions were not wanted in any other way. Our history also as post-65 immigrants is only possible because of the struggle for civil rights and because of the Black liberation struggle in this country, right? Um, it is because of the civil rights struggle, which partly led to the civil rights laws and the anti-discrimination laws, the voting rights laws in this country that opened up the stage then for the immigration law that actually brought a lot of our parents' generation here. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we stand here on the backs of people who fought in those struggles. So that's, I think, one of the first ways that we can get involved, like take responsibility for our own education and our own awareness raising. Yeah. And then to understand how oh, white supremacy be. has propped up systems that exclude and other people from our own backgrounds and that that's on the continuum, right, of what it has done, what white supremacy has done to other people. Then we can start to think about what's my role in terms of how I show up in um, defending Black lives. It's like a two-lane highway, in a sense, you know? Um, one part of it, one lane of that highway, is to actually defend Black lives and dismantle white supremacy. So that means understanding the demands of Black-led organizers and Black communities in this country and playing a role to support those demands. 
And that's where I think I, I really try not to use the word ally because I think that for people of color in particular, I really think we have to think of ourselves as accomplices and co-conspirators mm -hmm. because we have a stake in white supremacy ending too right? Um, we're not just passive bystanders who this doesn't affect. The fact that there is a system of policing in this country that targets Black people, well, that system of policing also targets Latinos, and it targets Asians, and it targets yeah. South Asians, right? Um, and there have been examples of South Asians being targeted too, or how the system of poor investments in education also affect other communities too. So we have a stake in dismantling white supremacist institutions. We have a stake in um, actually making sure that funding and investments happen so that people have access to food and healthcare and education, right? Rather than um, the military and defense and policing. So instead of being an ally, I think we think of ourselves as co-conspirators. I think it's really important to follow the demands of black people who are um, targeted the most right now. The other lane of the highway is actually what we alluded to earlier, which is the work we do internally within our community. So how do we address anti-Black racism within our community, which is actually prevalent? We can talk about the ways in which our native languages have very derogatory words to describe mm -hmm. Black people, um, or the ways in which... Um, you know, I'm sure many of us have heard, like, don't go into that neighborhood, which is just a way of saying that it's a Black neighborhood and it's, quote, not safe, or the prohibitions around dating Black people. How are we also confronting colorism and caste hierarchies? Because there, as we talked about earlier, there is a connection there in terms of building hierarchies of superiority and inferiority. I think there's so much that we need to unlearn as a community, and this is so ingrained in us, this anti-Blackness as well. There's so much education, even history. I feel like we've been taught a certain history that doesn't al align with what's actually going on. And there's so much about you said that I never even knew about. The question that I have is, how do we deal with people in our community, particularly loved ones, family members, if we hear things that sound uh, anti-Black to us? I've already heard things amongst loved ones, family and friends, that I find appalling sometimes, but I'm not sure how to bring up the conversation in a healthy and meaningful way that won't be seen as offensive to them. It's um, natural for us to feel frustrated, right, with those types of conversations. And I think that the way to kind of come into these conversations is to, you know, recognize that we get triggered in that way, right, and to know how far we can push it. Because it's not a one conversation process. It takes multiple conversations and it takes a tremendous amount of patience. And so part of what I think can be useful, and I try to do this a lot too in my own practice, is to think about how much capacity do I have to have this conversation with this person, right, in my life? And um, how far can I take it without kind of completely feeling like I can't do this anymore? Because if I'm going to embark on it, then it really needs to be a process. The second piece I would suggest is that, as you said, Rishika, instead of berating or lecturing, right, I often think that it's helpful to engage in a conversation that begins with finding shared or common struggle. And that sometimes happens through the telling of stories. And I mean, not like fake stories, but real stories, right? 
one of the ways that many South Asians or Indian Americans in particular began having the, these conversations was actually about a year or so after Ferguson and the murder of Michael Brown, there was an Indian grandfather that you may have read about in Alabama, Suresh Bhai Patel, who was assaulted by a police officer when he was taking a walk in his neighborhood in Alabama. And he did not speak English well. He could not communicate very well with the police officer um, who assaulted him and rendered him paralyzed on one side of his body. And when that story broke, right, I think that a lot of people in the Indian community were, one, shocked, oh, this happens to us too, and two, um, started to see some commonalities in terms of what Black folks have been saying for a really long time about the system of policing in this country and how oftentimes it targets people of color and vulnerable people. This was a grandfather taking a walk, right, who didn't speak English well. And so that became a starting point to say, what do you think of this? I don't want this to happen to you. And what did you make of it? That then opens up a conversation about the system of policing. And that then can lead to um, a conversation about, well, this is kind of similar to what Black folks have been saying, right? And they're facing it in such heightened ways where there are people being murdered and children being murdered. We should, of course, change our behaviors towards each other. Um, but unless we change the system, the lived conditions that people face are not gonna shift. And so um, it's really important, I think, to also talk about what the system or the law or the policy or the institution and what role it plays in propping up um, white supremacy and oppression and then how that actually um, discriminates against all people of color. Tell us a little bit about your book, We Too Sing America. I, I feel like it's very uh, relevant to what we're talking about right now. Yeah, sure. The book actually came out of my work in the South Asian American community um, in the post 9-11 moment. And seeing that in many ways in our country, there's a really, there's a real sanitized history um, that we tell about the post 9-11 experience. Oftentimes, it's a history that doesn't include the voices and experiences of South Asian, Muslim, Arab, and Sikh immigrants. When we often tell those stories, we talk about just like the years right after 9-11 and the hate violence and the profiling and the detentions and deportations that happened in like the first like three years or so, right? But unfortunately, um, post 9-11 bias and hate um, has really rendered itself into the fabric of this country because beyond the interpersonal hate violence, right? Um, there has always also been a form of state violence um, where the government has created a national security state and an immigration system remade it really, right, in the wake of 9-11. And the ways in which national security laws and immigration laws still continue to operate today um, really have some of their genesis in post 9-11 policies. So the Muslim ban is, um, it has an antecedent, it's called special registration, which happened right after 9-11. Post 9-11 policies and state violence were not limited to like the first three years, they continue to happen. And so does the hate violence, right? So my book actually opens with the uh, massacre at the Sikh Gurdwara that happened in 2014. And um, how that, again, is tied to a pattern of what we saw after 9-11 and continue to see in this country. It continues to be relevant because a lot of those policies and practices um, still show up today. 
aligning with your book, and I think that's a great source for us as well. What other sources do you think we, you could recommend to us right now to understand these struggles that are happening? In terms yeah. of South Asian um, history, I would suggest um, a book called Bengali Harlem which is a book by Vivek Bald, which really traces that history in terms of the um, connections between Black communities and South Asian communities um, for cross-racial solidarity. A really good friend of mine, Anurvan Chatterjee, has um, a really great resource online called The Secret History of South Asian and African-American Solidarity. And then for courageous conversations with family, um, the Queer South Asian National Network developed a guide with exercises and conversations starters um, after the murder of Michael Brown. All of that is linked um, in a piece I wrote called South Asians and Black Lives um, that um, I wrote in the midst of the uprisings that we're seeing right now. One thing that you said that honestly I'm a little intimidated by is you were talking about how we have to change the system and that's uh, that's this like pretty large thing to think about um, and I know you've written about how you know there's different roles for change and you've written about storytelling and caregiving and disruptors for the average person who's like me who's not on the forefront kind of battling every day what can we do to create change realistically you're right that sometimes it is intimidating to figure out what our role is in a movement the systems are so built up like they're historic they've been here forever how do we change that the first thing i would say is to get focused and clear about what your scope of influence is. All of us have scopes of influence. Folks listening can likely pick up the phone and make a call or send an email to a city council legislator. We want you to defund the police. We don't want the police in schools. There are others who might be able to put up a post on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, right? And do so consistently. Like it's not just about changing our profile picture. It's about actually um, continuously and continually um, sharing articles and being in the process of cross-education, right? Pollinating education beyond ourselves. You alluded, Neha, to a mapping framework that I developed called, you know, what's your role in a social change ecosystem, which has different roles that people can play. And part of that is recognizing first the scope of influence is like your ecosystem, right? And so if you are, for example, um, a teacher, right? Or then your scope of influence might be your students, or it could be your fellow teachers. If you're somebody who works in healthcare, it could be the hospital that you work in or the healthcare provider that you work at, um, or your peers or an association you belong to. In the Indian American context, the um, association that organizes physicians from India called API, um, put out a statement actually on racial violence against black people, right? That's the first time they've taken a position like that. And that's really important. What is the sphere of influence? What is my ecosystem? And then you could use that mapping framework, which I can send you a link to, to try to figure out what my role is in that ecosystem. So as you said, some people are frontline responders. These are people who are going to be ready to, um, go to the rally, right? Or go to the protest. Um, there are others of us who are caregivers. And so that in this context could be actually um, providing some nurturing and care to a black colleague or friend 
in our ecosystem. Others of us are disruptors. And so what that means is people who will, as Rishika was talking about, have those courageous conversations and disrupt some of the perceptions or appalling statements that we hear. Others of us are storytellers, and so those are people who are able to actually um, tell the stories of how the system of policing has affected communities of color. And to do that either through your social media post or a blog or whatever other way you get your messages across. So those, those are just some examples of how each of us can play a role in actually dismantling white supremacy and anti-Black racism. Building off of that and just thinking about our conversation today, I think the, the idea and kind of rebranding ourselves as co-conspirators is really interesting. And I feel like that's something that's going to kind of sit with me as I marinate the, the power that comes with that. This is something that's been going on for such a long time and it's a process and we have to be patient with the process too. I feel like there's this urgency to do anything and everything right now to find a quick solve. Um, and that's not how we, we create systemic change. And so thank you for reminding us to be patient. So thank you very, very much for your time. We really, really appreciate it. I could probably talk to you for hours more. But <laughs> I don't know what that is. I think we need these conversations. They're all stepping stones and scaffolding that we're creating mm -hmm. and they are meaningful and significant. So thank you for taking the time.